my teacher was named Miss Robbie Hires. And she asked us one day, boys and girls, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so when it came my turn, I said, I'm going to work for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and then the Georgia State Patrol and maybe the FBI. And I'm going to go into law enforcement. She says, oh, really? Okay. And so I talked about going and getting a criminology degree at Valdosta State. And she smiled and encouraged me along with all the other boys and girls about what we could become when we grew up. Later, as you already know, God had different plans for my life. I'm sure God goes, him arresting people? No, not going to happen. So God had a different call for my life, and he called me into uh, vocational ministry, and I became a pastor when I was 19 years old. Preached my first sermon when I was 17, but when I felt called into ministry, and I shared with that my church that on a Sunday evening, Miss Robbie Hires was one of the first people to come down and encourage me that evening. As a a 17-year-old, she said, I would never have burst your bubble when you were 12 years old. But when you said you were going to go into law enforcement, I already knew then that's not what God had for you. God had something else. This is what he had for you. And as I look back on my childhood ambition to become a law enforcement officer, I realize now as a kid it was more about the perks and the privileges and the power and the position of being a police officer than it was really about serving and protecting. You know, I I, I thought about the cool car you get to drive because I love cars. I love fast cars. And I thought about the uniform and the gun and people have to do what you tell them to do. And so as a kid, I was more interested in being served than in serving and protecting. And I don't think as a kid, I was the only one who had that ambition. Rarely do you hear a kid say, when I grow up, I want to be a servant. We often want to be served. We want to be rich. We want to be famous. We want a lot of people working for us. And even as adults, as we grow up, that can still be a driving force in our lives. That we jockey for position, we jockey for power, and really life becomes about what we get out of it rather than what we give back. And if we're not careful, we push away from that identity of being a servant. I don't like that word. That seems undignified. It seems beneath me to be considered a servant. We don't want to be servants. And if we're not careful, that idea of pushing away from servanthood can creep into our relationships. It can come into our relationships whether we're dating or we're married. And we start looking at the other person about what they give to us rather than what we can give to them and to the relationship. Or as kids, we start assuming and and abusing what our parents do for us rather than serving in the family and helping out around the house. We go to work and we we can look down on people who are our subordinates and we can just use them to make ourselves look better and to get ahead in the company. We can even come to church and if we're not careful, church can become this consumer-driven enterprise where it's all about what I get out of church rather than what I can do with the church, in the church, and through the church to help other people. And we come to church and we judge the church whether we like the facilities or the parking was convenient or whether they had programming for all the family, whether the music was a a 10, whether the preaching was a 10. And if we don't get what we're looking for here, we'll go to another place until we find what we like. And so we want to get something out of it. But then as soon as the service is over, we can leave and 
It's almost like we just went to a show and we watched a show, but it really didn't impact our life. And that's not who we are, by the way, as a church. We, we are as a church that desires to see ourselves as followers of Jesus who served others, and we want to serve others. But we, too, have to push against that tendency to become self-centered, to have this entitlement mentality that it's really all about what I get rather than what I give. Now, we're not the first people to struggle with this tendency to become self-centered. Would it surprise you to know that even the first followers of Jesus were self-centered? I mean, there they are going through the best seminary in the world for three years with the greatest teacher in the world for three years, the greatest servant and the greatest example the world has ever seen, and yet they didn't get it. His own disciples did not understand that life is not about being served. Life's not about the perks and the privileges and the position and the power that you can accrue to yourself. Life is about leveraging your life for the benefit of other people's lives. As a matter of fact, what I want to talk to you today about is one of the most humbling moments you will ever see in the life of Jesus outside of the cross of Calvary. It's one of the most humbling moments where Jesus humbles himself, condescends to serve his disciples in this shocking, actually scandalous way. It was the night that he got on his hands and knees and he, the Son of God, washed the dirty feet of a bunch of men. We see this in John's Gospel, chapter 13, and we're going to read today through this story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, we'll finish up around verse 17. You may want to open up your Bible and follow me along as we walk through this together. But before we read the scripture, I want to set the stage of what has just happened. This is on the Thursday night before Jesus is being betrayed by Judas, before Jesus is about to be arrested this is the night that he is observing what we now call the Last Supper. Jesus is literally within hours of dying as a volunteer on a cross for you and for me and for his disciples and for the world. And as Jesus has this weight of the world on his shoulders, as he knows what is ahead of him, he's taking his 12 disciples to this upper room to have one final meal with them, to spend a few precious, unhurried moments with them, and to remind them once again what is about to happen is not an accident, it is an appointment. It's a divine appointment that God the Father has sent the Son to die for the sin of the world, and they're going to have to trust Him not only in life, but even as He dies. But you know, they're totally oblivious to what Christ is going through. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, verse 24, Luke tells us that just before they get there to the upper room that night, the disciples, those 12 men that Jesus chose to be his intimate followers, were arguing among themselves. And do you know what they're arguing about? They're arguing which one of them is the greatest in that group. Which one of them deserves to be recognized as the greatest among the disciples so that the other 11 will have to serve that one? They are jockeying for position. 
I'm better than you are. I'm greater than you are. I followed Jesus before you did. I don't have all the baggage that you have. I didn't do all the bad things in my past that you've done in your past. And they were arguing about which one of them is the greatest in his group. It would be like this morning when you show up here to walk in the door and you hear church members arguing, you hold that door for me, I'm not holding that door for you. You sit in the back, I get to sit up front, I'm better than you are, I'm greater than you are, I don't have the past you've got, we all know your past. I put more money in the offering plate, I've been a member of this church longer than you've been here, I know the pastor, I have his cell number, I'm greater than you are. You say, that would be ridiculous. That would be so childish. That would be so self-centeredness. That's exactly what was going on in the life of the disciples. And while we may not argue that publicly about being the greatest in God's kingdom, or at least even in this church, or in our relationships, sometimes our actions speak louder than words. I'm not doing that. You can do that. That's beneath me. I'm not going to help out there. That's your job. And if we're not careful, we can be just like the disciples. So Jesus takes this night to teach them one more lesson that they will never forget about what it means to be his follower. Jesus is going to present a parable where he is the main character in the parable right before their eyes, showing them that a call to follow Jesus is a call to serve like Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I want you to notice, first of all, as we look at uh, verse 1, the love of Jesus that motivates him. John, in his gospel, is called the disciple of love. John, John refers to himself without calling his own name. He, he refers to himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loves. I mean, he, he knows that Jesus loves, and he knows that Jesus loves him. And John highlights the love of Jesus throughout his gospel. He's done it a few times up until now, and he will do it many more times as Jesus goes to the cross of Calvary. And John points out the fact that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, those 12 disciples that he chose, having loved them, he loved them to the end. That doesn't just mean that he loved them to the end of that night or he loved them to the end of his own life on the cross just a few hours away as he bleeds out and gives up his life for his disciples. Whenever John uses the word to the end in the Greek, he said, Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the fullest. He loved them to the greatest extent possible. Jesus could not have loved his disciples any more than he loved them. I don't know about you, but I could be a person of love more I could love my wife more. I could love my kids more. I could love you more. But Jesus loved his own perfectly. And everything he did in life was motivated out of that heart of love. 
He never did anything out of selfishness. He never did anything for himself. He leveraged his life for the good of other people. And he's about to demonstrate that on the cross of Calvary. But before he gets there, he feels that his disciples need one more illustration of how much he loves them. And did you notice how John describes Jesus? It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour to depart out of this world to the Father had come. Jesus knew who he was. He knew he came from the Father as the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that he had come into this world for an appointed hour the hour when he would suffer and bleed on a cross for the sins of the world. He would make an atonement for our sin. Make it possible for us and God to be united through his own sacrificial death on a cross. And he knew that hour had come. And he knew that he would depart his disciples. Depart from this world. And go back to the Father. And with all of that... He still had time and humility enough to prove his love for his disciples. The Son of God is about to serve his disciples in a way to show how much he loved them. Now, maybe you've heard this story before, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And you say, I just don't get it. I mean, what's the big deal? Okay, it's great. They, they were dirty. They needed to have their feet washed. Okay, I get it. And, you know, I understand why we don't get scandalized by this story anymore, 2,000-plus years later in our Western culture. But the scandal is in who's doing the washing of the feet. Let's just be honest. If, if, you, if you come over to my house and, and you, you serve me by cleaning the bathroom, you're going to be a friend of mine for life, you know? And if you get in there and you scrub that toilet, now I'm going to know that you are a friend indeed. For you to scrub someone else's toilet, that's huge. But what if the Queen of England shows up at your home and goes into your bathroom and scrubs your toilet? You would go, what are you doing? Get up from that filthy floor. Not you. You cannot do this. The King of all kings and the Lord of all lords is about to humble himself by getting on the floor and washing the dirt and the debris and the dung between the toes of his disciples. If that's not love, I don't know what is. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It's an indescribable event. It's amazing what Jesus did. Jesus seeing the turmoil among his disciples where they're arguing about which one of them is greater than the other and who ought to serve who. 
that he finally just pushes back from the table and without saying a word to them, he strips off his clothes, leaving only this loincloth with this long extended part of the robe around his waist. And he gets a basin of water and he gets a towel and he gets down on his hands and knees at the feet of one of his first disciples. We don't know which one was first. And he begins to pour water over their feet and wipe their feet with his robe, with that cloth. In that culture, whenever you would dine, you would recline at a low-slung table. You didn't pull up chairs to a table like we did in many banquet settings. Instead, it would be a triclinium. It would be like a U-shaped configuration of a low table with cushions all around it. You would lay on your side, propped up on your left elbow, and you would eat with your right hand, and your legs would be extended away from the table behind you. And so there would be a person laid out here, and a person stretched out here, and a person stretched out here, and it was only proper that before you reclined at dinner with someone, that you would have your feet washed by the lowest servant in the household. This was not a job for any servant. This was a job for the lowest servant, the lowest on the totem pole. That's your job. You get to wash all the feet of the guests who come in the door tonight so that when they recline at table, no one is looking at or smelling dirty feet. Their, their shoes were sandals. They were rudimentary sandals of leather, thongs of leather that would be on the bottom of your foot and then wrapped around your feet up your ankles. And as you walk with those open-toed shoes throughout the dusty streets, you would get all kinds of dirt and grime on your feet. And it was that servant's job to wash everyone's feet so they would be prepared for the supper. But when the disciples walked into that upper room that night, they saw the basin of water. They saw the towel. They knew the custom. But none of them humbled themselves to serve each other because they were still arguing, which one's greatest? That's your job. I'm not doing it. That's your job to do that. And no one did it. But Jesus does it. There he is embodying a servant's servant in the way he is dressed, stripped down to nothing but this loincloth. And there he is looking like a servant. And out of all of Greek history, out of all of Jewish history, and out of all of Roman history, according to every historian I can find, there has never been a time when a superior washed the feet of an inferior or a subordinate. Never in Jewish history can it be found where a rabbi washed the feet of his disciples. Often disciples would wash the teacher's feet, but never the teacher washing the pupil's feet. Never can the Greek history show you where a superior washed the feet of inferior or subordinates. But the Son of God, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, humbled himself out of love. And did what no one else was willing to do. Because servanthood was not just an activity for Jesus. It was an identity for Jesus. It is who he is. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. For even the son of man, he said, did not come to be served. 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And who did he serve? By washing their filthy feet. He served people like Judas Iscariot, where everyone else is clueless of what has already been conspired in the heart of Judas, planted there by Satan himself to betray the Son of God. But Jesus knew it and still washed his feet and still loved him and still gave him one more chance to repent and put his faith in Jesus as Savior. And Jesus not only loved people like Judas or Matthew Levi or Thomas or Andrew or Simon the Zealot, all of them, Jesus was willing to do what others thought they were too good to do. I'm not doing that. That's beneath me. They're arguing who's the greatest, and yet the greatest in the room took the lowest position, the position of a servant. Sometimes people say, I'm all about serving and helping people, but I won't help that person. Well, that's exactly the person Jesus would have helped. Well, I'm all about serving, but with someone with my educational achievements, that job is beneath me. Someone else needs to do that. This position over here of changing diapers in the nursery, that's great for those new church members, but you know, I've been a member here for 40 years. I've served my time in the nursery. Well, that's a job for somebody to greet people and hand out a bulletin, but you know, anybody can do that. I've got better skills than that. That is a waste of my time to be at the back door just greeting people, saying good morning as they come in, and handing them a sheet of paper. Surely, you wouldn't ask me to do that. I have actually had someone lead the church because we asked them to greet people at the front door and pass out bulletins. It was beneath them. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done in other churches? Don't you know my skills? I now know all I need to know about you. Because if Jesus was willing to serve, who am I to think that something is beneath me in meeting the need of another person? Verse 6, actually, yeah, verse 6, it says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? So he, we don't know where he starts, but he ends up somewhere, finally, to, before Simon Peter. And Simon Peter knows enough to know that something's wrong with this picture. And so he protests, Lord, what are you doing? You're, you're going to wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus says, Peter, you don't know everything. <laughs> you know a lot, but you don't know everything. But I do have a reason I'm doing this, and it will become clear to you later. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. That's Peter, isn't it? Don't you love Peter? Peter often opened his mouth to change feet. Because you know, he was good at sticking his foot in his mouth. Remember once he said to Jesus, when Jesus said, who am I? Who do people say I am? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then Jesus talks about going to a cross, and Peter says, stop talking about that cross. He says, that's where I'm headed. 
Get behind me, Satan. And so now Peter is protesting. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Never will I let you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He said, Peter, for me, servanthood is not just an activity. It is an identity. This is why I came. And if you reject me serving you, you're rejecting me. There's nothing left. This is who I am. And if I don't wash you, then you can't be a part of me. Now, Peter goes from one extreme. You'll never wash me to the other extreme. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> okay, Lord, wash me off because I'm with you. I'm in. I believe in you. I mean, so I, I give Peter credit for that. But Jesus said to him in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. When you came to a banquet like this, you would typically take a bath and put on new clothes. And when you showed up for the banquet, you didn't need a whole new bath again. You just needed your feet clean. And Peter was already one of Jesus' disciples. He has been sanctified and cleansed through the righteous life and the coming sacrifice of Jesus. And... Jesus says, Peter, I just need to wash your feet. Just, Peter, I got this. I'm in charge. I know what I'm doing. I don't need to wash all of you. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Not every one of my disciples, Jesus says, is clean. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus served his disciples in the most humble way that he could outside dying for them on the cross of Calvary. He is preaching a parable with his own life. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus says, lesson is over. Do you get it? Do you understand what I have done to you? While you guys are arguing about who's going to be the greatest, James and John, while you two argued about which one of you deserved to sit on my right hand and my left when I come into my kingdom and sit on the throne of heaven, do you guys don't understand that I am your master? You call me Lord and you're right to do so because I am your Lord. I am the boss. I am the master. And you call me rabbi. You call me teacher. And you're right. I'm the teacher. You're the pupil. Do you understand what I've done? Do you understand the lesson that I've taught you? Do you understand the example that I'm setting for you? If I've done this, how much more ought you to do this for one another? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If I, the greater, 
Lord and teacher have done this, shouldn't you, the lesser, do this? And they can't argue with Jesus. They know good and well he's right. That if he goes first, if he sets the example, then being his follower means we follow in his footsteps. You say, well, is he saying that we ought to have a foot washing ceremony here at Fort Caroline? No. People think this is a new act of Christian right. Okay, we got baptism, we got communion, but we also need to have foot washing services. Listen, if churches do that to illustrate the point that Jesus is making, I'm fine with that. But that's not what he was doing. He was not instituting a new ordinance for the church to follow. He was instituting a new example that what you see an immediate need, do it out of love, meet that need out of love. Love people indiscriminately. Serve other people indiscriminately. That's the example I'm setting for you. It's not about foot washing. For you, it may be serving your spouse at home. For you, it may be going to the office and saying, I know as your boss, I've given you a big project. But listen, how can I serve you? How can I help you win? What do you need from me? Maybe it's going to school and helping someone who's struggling to pass. And saying, how can I tutor you and serve you? Maybe it's going to a homeless person and rather than questioning your mind how they got there and they probably deserve it and that's what you get from making poor choices in your life, maybe you ought to just shut up and go meet the need that you see right in front of you. Maybe if there's a person that's down and out, maybe you need to invite them to church where we can help them reach higher for the life of God that he has for them. Maybe in the church, instead of saying someone ought to, maybe you ought to look in the mirror and say, I'm that someone. Maybe I ought to go and do this. Maybe I ought to serve and to help. What is it that Jesus is calling us to do? He's saying, serve others indiscriminately out of love for me and love for them. Because when you serve others, you're following in the footsteps of your foot-washing Savior. Do you know how we do the Be Rich campaign? It is not because this is a once-a-month thing and then we can check it off our list. Ooh, we were generous. Now we're done with being generous for, 12, for the next uh, 11 months. We'll be generous again next year. No, this is just a concentrated effort that shows the kind of church we are 365 days a year. We're generous in helping meet people's needs all the time in ways that I know about and ways I don't know about. But you know why we do it? Because it meets immediate needs. But it also gives us the opportunity when people say, why would you do this for me? Just following in the footsteps of my foot-washing Savior. He served me on a cross. He didn't just strip off his clothes and take a basin of water and a towel and wash my feet. He stripped off his clothes, stretched out his arms, and gave his very life for me. He served me out of love like no one else ever has. And out of gratitude, I want to be like him. I can't ever do what he did on a cross, but I can serve you and meet this need. And we can meet people's needs in the name of Jesus. Inside the walls of our church, outside the walls of this church, in our family, at our work, over at Mayport Elementary School. Some of you are going over to her song and painting the whole house. Outside, at least, is what I was told. If Tom O'Reilly's there, the whole thing will be done. He's so fast. Tom, are you going to that one or are you going to Mayport? There you are. I saw you back there. Why are we doing all this? We just want to follow in the footsteps 
of our foot-washing Savior. Here's your homework this week. You ever gone to a restaurant and you, you walk up to the counter? You can tell I'd go to fine dining when you have to walk up to the counter. Uh, two stars at best for me. And they, they ask you, how may I serve you? Have you ever had someone say that? How may I serve you? It's kind of an odd question. You don't hear that much. And so it kind of catches me off balance every time I hear it. Not how may I help you, but how may I serve you? That well, hey, you know, I didn't come to be served. You know, I'm not all that, but I would like a cheeseburger. Uh, <laughs> but it just feels odd someone to ask, how can they serve you? Hey, if you go to Chick-fil-A and you tell them how they can serve you and then you say thank you, they'll say, my pleasure. Go get some Baptist chicken. They'll say, my pleasure. Well, you can't do it today. <laughs> can't do it today. <laughs> but it's something to meet a person who wants to serve you and they don't mind doing it. Do you agree with me? It's one thing for somebody to serve you and you can tell they don't want to do it. Fine, here's your cheeseburger. Whereas you got a spouse that, you know, in the house and sure they're doing what you know that you wanted them to do, but you can tell they don't want to do it. The drawers are slamming. The dishes are banging. You don't want that. You want people who serve gladly. My pleasure. I want you to ask someone this week. When you see a need, just ask the question, how may I serve you? Hey, I see what you're dealing with. How may I serve you? How can I help you? And I guarantee you, you're going to surprise some people. And then just, if you can, meet the need right in front of you. Love and serve. In doing so, you'll be following in the footsteps of your foot-washing Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for his example of loving service. Illustrated by his washing the disciples' feet. And most certainly demonstrated as he died on a cross just a few hours later for those same disciples and for each one of us. Serving us by leveraging his life for ours. By meeting a need we could not meet. And he did it out of love. He did it because he wanted to. That none other than the Son of God humbled himself to serve us. We thank you and praise you for that. God, I thank you that for every Christ follower in this room, that they've been cleansed and washed by the blood of Christ. Yeah, we still get our feet dirty in this life. We still sin. We still mess up. But we thank you that Jesus promises that he forgives and he cleanses from all unrighteousness those who confess their sin to him. And so we go out and we serve others not to earn our salvation, but to express it. We go out and serve others just simply to follow in the footsteps of our foot-washing Savior. We do it because that's what he's done for us. We do it willingly and lovingly and gladly. We're thankful for the opportunity. God serving others looks different for each one of us. I can't tell each person in this room exactly how they need to apply this message. But I do pray, Father, that if nothing else, they'll walk out the door today knowing that service is not just an activity, it's an identity. And if we will each see ourselves 
as servants to Christ, then the details will follow. How you want us to use our time and our talent, even the testimony of our salvation, and our money to, to serve other people. So God, we trust you. That you'll put people and opportunities in our place where we can ask, how may I serve you? And you'll find us faithful to follow in Christ's footsteps. And God, for anyone who's never received Jesus as their Savior, I pray that right now in the stillness of this moment, that they would know that what he did on the cross was for them, that his love extends to them, that he loves them perfectly, can't love them anymore, and that he died for them on the cross of Calvary. And if they will turn from their sin and confess it to Jesus, he promises that he will give the gift of eternal life when they place their trust in him. And so, Father, I point people to Jesus today if they need him as their Lord and their Savior. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.